a few episodes ago, we recorded an episode with Matt Inkenthrone, and I introduced the episode saying that you could slide a bag of popcorn in the microwave, only now to have just been tweeted by Matt so that he could let me know that people think that I'm sliding babies in the microwave because I said slide that baby in the microwave, referring to the popcorn bag. So I just want to clear the air that I'm not putting any literal babies in the microwave. I am not a huge fan of kids, but I would never put a baby in the microwave. Just saying. Anyways, this is the Hacker Noon Podcast, and my name is Amy Tom. I am delighted to be joined today by Matt Gross again from Couch base back for his second episode and by rob hedgepath from maria db so matt today i want to go into more about your career and talk about how you got to where you got to today so to start off i want to mention that you are the product marketing manager at couchbase how long have you been working there I've been working at Couchbase for over five years now. It's hard to believe. It's been a long Ooh. time. I haven't always been a, a, a product marketing manager, but I've been there for over five years. And I want to ask you, what was your very first job ever? My very first job, like even when I was in high school, like how far back are we going? Yes. Oh, gosh. <laughs> I, I, I want to know how far you've come on your journey. I think... This is going to be probably foreign to a lot of listeners, but I used to go door to door and I drop off these like sort of pieces of like large bricks of paper with like news stories on them. And then people would pay for that. <laughs> door to door. Yeah, I was a paper boy is what they called it. Yes. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. All right. Yeah, in Canada, we have that, but like you pay for the subscription ahead of time and then someone, the paper boy, brings you your news door to door. Yeah, yes, that's that's what it was. That's what it was. I, I was oh, just okay. kind of, I was just being kind of silly, but but yes, yes, I was a paper, <laughs> paper delivery person. Yeah, Sounds like you were getting money under yeah. the table. <laughs> like it must have been hard to sell the daily newspaper every day door to door. That sounds difficult. <laughs> Okay, cool. And Rob, how long have you been working as a developer advocate? Yeah, so as a developer advocate, I've been working for, I guess, about two or I guess almost four years now. I actually worked with with Matt at Couchbase before starting at MariaDB. So I uh, have been in a couple different places working as a developer advocate. Okay, and what was your very first job? <laughs> Yeah, so I guess dating all the way back. So I actually grew up on a farm. And so uh, we had my grandpa had, you know, about 200 head of cattle. Um, and, you know, it was kind of self sustaining. So you'd have like hay season during the summer. And so my first job was driving a tractor for $5 an hour, um, you know, in the sweltering southern Missouri heat and humidity. Uh, my grandpa loved it because I'm pretty sure he didn't pay taxes on any of that. Uh, I loved it because, you know, I hadn't ever gotten money before uh, and I didn't really know there was much better jobs out there. <laughs> Wait, what was the purpose of driving the tractor? Was there like a mower attached to it or something? Well, hey, it's kind of a it's kind of a step by step process, right? First, you'll cut the grass or the hay, then it dries and you, you do something called tethering where you essentially will spread it out so the sun will dry it. Uh, then you 
you can rake it up into windrows and then you come in finally again with a baler and you can create like round bales or square bales. Yeah. It's a whole process to be able to do it. I love that. I love that you have come <laughs> such a different direction than to get into tech and develop for advocacy from farming and driving yeah. tractors. Once I found, yeah, once I found out that you can get paid to work with computers yeah. and uh, not be outside with a tractor, yeah. I was all about the it. The internet? Sign me up. What? <laughs> Uh, it's not too far off from, from yeah. fallback if uh, this one or thing doesn't pan out yeah yeah right i at least can uh make some hay i guess for some animals we all farmers. <laughs> okay cool <laughs> yeah. so matt after you finished doing the paper boy route <laughs> what did you do for schooling Oh, gosh. So my high school, I went to a very rural school where everybody probably knew what Rob was just talking about just now, except for me. <laughs> um, and, and we had basically two computer programming classes, period, and it was on basic programming. And I had already known that. So not much in the way of high school education there in terms of computers. But then I went uh, off to uh, a university, got a computer science degree, then eventually got into uh, uh, my first programming job. How did you learn how to code originally? Oh, gosh. So this is probably a story you've heard a million times, but uh, my dad brought home an old, uh, like a TRS-80 computer, gave me uh, a little bit of instructions, how to write basic, gave me a book, and then I was off to the races. And I surpassed him pretty quickly in his his knowledge of, of programming. And I just loved doing it. And I said, this is what I want to do for a living. And uh, I just kept pursuing that and working with computers and, and just kept going that route. And what was your first job out of school? Well, so again, my first job out of school was around 2003, 2002, something like that. Yeah, 2003. And which is, there was kind of a job market issue at the time because the Y2K thing was just over. So I actually didn't mm. start right away as a programmer. I was actually a cable guy. So I was a paper <laughs> boy and then a cable guy for, for a year. <laughs> and some. But that was actually a really interesting job. Also a job I'd love to fall back on someday because I was in good shape. I was, uh, you know, I was learning about technology in the process. So that's what I, that's what I did for a while. I was searching for that first programmer job all the, the whole time, but that was my first like full-time I'm married. I have my own place type of job. So. Okay. And Rob back to you, where did you go to school? Uh, so I went to school in Southern Missouri that at the time was called Southwest Missouri State University. And then about halfway through, uh, they got a name change and now they're just Missouri State University. Got my bachelor's in computer science, minored in math, physics, and religious studies of all things, because I started as a political science major. I was the first person out of my entire extended family that had ever even gone to college. And so I knew of two professions from college. Uh, a doctor and a lawyer. Uh, and I had just asked like, well, I don't want to become a doctor. So how, what do I do to become a lawyer? And somebody said, you know, go do political science. So I did that for about a year and I hated it. I hated all my classes. And then I decided to, to look around and I switched to computer science. And it was, it was definitely a journey getting through school, right? Because I had taken a year off from anything math, physics, or really anything analytical or, you know, <laughs> you know, being able to think in that, that way uh, for about a year and then, you know, got through school and, and then was kind of off to the races at that point. Yeah. You really came from a farm background then. Like, 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, my, I, you know, my, my dad now has taken over the since taken over the farm. I don't think it's going to be me that takes it over next. So yeah, I mean, I, I came from several generations of cattle farmers or ranchers, I guess, and people call them, but yeah. Uh, yeah, that's, and I went into school with absolutely, I probably could have asked some more questions before I went to college, but mm-hmm. I didn't. And so then, yeah, I just, uh, finally landed in computer science. Yeah. Your, your college experience kind of sounds like my nightmare as well, because I'm not a math person, not a science person, can't do any of that stuff. I think I would have really struggled. I went to school for business. So definitely more business and marketing minded than math and science minded for sure. <laughs> well, it, it definitely wasn't, it definitely wasn't easy. I mean, there was, uh, lots of you know, two, 3 a.m. Uh, computer lab nights. Cause you know, we did, I didn't have a computer of my own even at mm. that point. Uh, so you just spent all your time in a computer lab, uh, you know, working with NetBeans or whatever compiler, you know, happened to be on that machine. Mm. And uh, what was your first job after schooling? So actually, so during school, I, my, my senior year, I actually did this full-time internship. So I was taking about 15 hours, I guess, both last two semesters and took this internship, you know, this hourly internship for at a place called Paperwise, which did like some document processing type of stuff. So that was my first job, I guess, kind of started during my last year. And then after that internship ended, I interviewed around a couple of places and then started a place called Educational Benchmarking. And I got to work in a hallway, kind of similar to my setup now where I'm just like out in the middle of nowhere. It was just this 10-person startup doing, uh, it was college survey uh, information, but you could do it online, right? And uh, just building ASP.net. Yeah, it was a it was an interesting experience, but you wear a lot of hats whenever there's only four people in a mm-hmm. company, right? So at the time, how difficult was it to get a job with a computer science degree? You know, it it wasn't as difficult. So this was back in this is 2007 um, when when I had this, and you know, one of the things is that in a small town or small area, Springfield, Missouri, it's kind of Southern Missouri. There wasn't a lot of people going or coming out of school with either, you know, computer information systems or computer science. So programmers were kind of hard to find. Um, so it was actually a little bit easier, I would think, than maybe some other places to be able to find a job back then. Yeah, makes sense. Do you mind me asking when this was? <laughs> oh, when, when, when yeah. I, yeah, this is back in 2007. Okay. Yeah, this is. <laughs> This is a a bit ago. (laughs) Not too long, though. Not too long. Okay. And then, Matt, I understand that you are also an author on the side of uh, working on your full-time job. So can you tell me about the books that you've written? I, well, we're both authors, actually. Rob and I are both. Uh, I, I oh. think Rob's more has more recent experience than I do. But uh, yeah, I, I, uh, I wrote a book uh, published back in 2013, I believe. I've worked on books since then, but not as like an author, but it was mm-hmm. a topic I was really passionate about at the time. And I, I still, you know, carry a candle. That's the expression, carry a candle for it to this day, uh, aspect oriented programming, AOP. And uh, there wasn't at least that I could find a, a, a book that was approachable for everyday.net developer on that topic. And so I felt really strongly about getting that book out there. And can you tell me a bit about the process of publishing? I know this is a little left field, but I would love to become an author one day. So I'm curious about that. Okay. Well, again, Rob might have a little more recent knowledge on it. Um, <laughs> but uh, for me, it was just like, it was kind of a passion project to start with. And I was, 
I was, I wrote like a sample chapter. That was kind of the first thing I did. Cause I had, I had known some people who had written books and kind of got their advice and they said, Oh, you know, write up a sample chapter and shop it around. And so that's what I did. I shopped it around to four or five different publishers. Wasn't getting anything. And I tried to start working some, some networking that I had some people who had written books and contacts that they had and nothing was really working. I was about one day away from pushing go on my own Kickstarter for this book. Cause that's how strongly I felt like this book's going to get written one way or the other. Mm. <laughs> so, um, but like one day before I got contacted through my network, like, Hey, we're going to, we want to publish your book. It was, it was Manning. They'd actually done some other aspect oriented programming books. So it was a perfect fit, I think. Uh, and so I was just kind of that, that process of, of writing something on spec, shopping it around, working the network and uh, just persevering. And then just just knowing that even if no one picks up this book, I'm still going to write it. Like this is something I, I care about. I want to do, uh, even if it's not going to pay me very much money. And ultimately, tech book authoring, like even if you're, I think John Resig of jQuery fame, mm-hmm. uh, he wrote a book on jQuery and he shared his royalty statement recently. And it's like, well, <laughs> this is not the profession to make a lot of money. Let me tell you that. Because if John Resig <laughs> isn't making it, then there's no way an obscure AOP and .NET book is going to make the bestseller list, let's say. Yeah. That's interesting, actually. I never thought about that. But I guess with a tech book, like, do you think that it goes out of style super quickly? That is definitely the case these days. Now, the book I had I had written, if you look at the examples now, I'm sure none of them compile. But a lot of the rest of the book, I had kind of written it in mind of, what if I'm reading this five years from now, will it still be useful? And so that's the mm-hmm. kind of tech I took. But not every book can be like that, right? If I'm writing a book on ASP.NET right. 4, you know, there's not much you can do about making that useful to someone writing ASP.NET 5 or 6 or whatever. So mm-hmm. uh, it, tech books are tough and they do go out of, out of uh, not out of style, but they go obsolete relatively quickly or deprecated yeah. quickly. So, I, you know, I think a lot of the companies are starting to push towards different delivery models of their books, maybe more uh, like a live updated. You can read it as it gets updated kind of book or even just like video content. You see a lot of that. It's mm-hmm. a little quicker to produce, I think and get turnaround time on. So mm-hmm. do you have any future authoring plans? I don't know how much I can talk about it, but I, I've written a chapter recently for a book. Like it's not my book, but I was brought in as like, Hey, could you write this chapter for me? And I, I honestly, I have no yeah. idea if or when it's going to be published at this point, but I've, I've also done some <laughs> like reviews of books. Um, that's the other thing, like getting plugged into the publisher you get opportunities to review books and provide feedback and provide quotes for the book or, you know, things like that. So again, not super lucrative, but, uh, you know, I get to check out a lot of cool books before they get published. So that's, yeah. that's a nice little benefit. Really cool. Interesting. And Rob, I would love to hear about your authoring journey as well. Oh yeah. Yeah. So I wrote uh, a book called R2 DBC revealed. So it is, it's just on a new relational database specification for being able to communicate with the database reactively. Um, And to Matt's point, um, that's something that it's new, right? So R2 DBC as a specification actually hasn't even released as one out. It's still pre GA. And so it's likely to change a ton. So, you know, in order to keep up with the times for something like this, you know, I'd have to go and probably write different versions of the book and make updates to it because it's likely that the specification is going to change a ton even within the Mm -hmm. next year. Uh, But it's a pretty small, you know, 200 pages. Uh, My experience was a little bit different in that 
the the publisher a press actually sought me out after i had done a couple of presentations on the topic I mean, it's new enough that nobody's really written that much on it. I and mean, they, you know, asked if I would be interested in writing a book on R2DBC. And, you know, unlike, you know, where Matt was, you know, he kind of had this passion for the project and, you know, for the, the topic that he wanted to cover. You know, I hadn't really developed that yet because it was so new. Um, and, you know, at work and, you know, on the, on the job, I cover a bunch of different languages with different types of connectors or drivers. So I mainly did it out of the, the question of whether or not I could write a book mm-hmm. was was mainly why I did it. it was just to see if I could. Um, we had just gotten uh, an infant son. Uh, it was the middle of a pandemic, so I figured, you know, why not? Why not just try to, you know, make my my sleep cycle, you know, <laughs> even more thrown off. <laughs> so I'll try to write a book. And you know, the process went that it was, you know, it was a little bit different in that whenever you work for the publisher like that, they define the deadlines mm-hmm. and you know the checkpoints and stuff like that, and. It was basically, so I would write a chapter a week. Um, so a, ch- a chapter would basically need to be uploaded into Google Drive is what we used every week. And so they're about 10 to 12 pages on average um, just every week. So it was a lot of really, really early mornings. Yeah. You got to create, obviously there's the, all the text, um, but you have to create all of the figures and diagrams. And, you know, if you have, you know, Matt had mentioned source code that compiles. So there's a ton that go into technical mm-hmm. books on top of the text itself, right? You have to basically, you know, write thousands of lines of code, um, depending on your project as well. Uh, mine was actually in Java, you know, it's, it's a Java-based specification. I mean, I actually come from more of a background of .NET, similar to Matt. Um, so that was, that was also a learning process for me, because you got to make sure that you're doing things, you know, for the Java ecosystem, the way that they would write things, I mean, be able to present that in a book mm-hmm. as well. So definitely didn't do it for the money. <laughs> I was going to say, I think it would be interesting to come the opposite way from how Matt had produced his book, where the publisher reaches out to you and sets all the deadlines. Because one of the things that I feel with when you're working with words as a medium is that it you can get into these like creative standstills or like uh, creative blockers where you just like can't write or can't edit anymore. So I think it's interesting to think about having to work on a deadline like that Um, must have been very challenging. Yeah, it was, you know, I mean, a lot of it, it had to deal with, you got to be consistent and you have to be very structured with how you go about it. You got to start early, like in the week, because if you put it all off towards the end, or at least in my case, if I put it off towards the end, just like you said, you may run into, you know, some kind of writer's block. But I found that for me, outlining everything up front and how I would actually organize just the flow was the easiest way for me to get in there. And so the text really, you know, I would, I would do the flow or the structure and I'd write all the code samples. And then I would just let the the text basically, you know, be something that I'm describing what I had already kind of laid out as a mm-hmm. structure. Do um, you have future authoring plans as well? Oh man, it's like so fresh <laughs> off of it. I got to be honest with you. I was just really happy to be done. Uh, so that's going to have to wear off uh, before. Uh, so as of now, yeah. no, uh, that's going to have to, that's going to have to wear off. So who knows how long it yeah. hasn't worn off. Just uh, <laughs> FYI. <laughs> uh, how long did it take you to write the book start to finish? 16 weeks. Okay, yeah, so 16 yeah. chapters. Yeah, so about four months. And and then there's a couple of months on top of that, right, where yeah. you go through editing cycles. And I mean, you're kind of going through editing, you know, during the process, but then you've got all these finalization steps and front matter and back matter and stuff like that. So it took about six mm-hmm. months to finish the process. And then it took another month or two. It actually just published in the beginning mm-hmm. of April. Um, so it just came oh, out. Congratulations. 
Oh, thank you. Matt, how long did it take you to write your book? I'm still waiting for my signed copy, by the way, Rob. In the mail. <laughs> uh, you won't give me address, your address for about a variety of reasons. All right, say sure. it on the air. Let's just clear this right now. <laughs> um, how long did it take to write my book? I, jeez, yeah. I don't remember. It felt like <laughs> it felt like the same amount of time for my son to be born, like nine months. But I don't, you know, like like Rob said, there's a lot of front matter and foreword and appendices and. I had to go back through and mm-hmm. set the indexing up, all that kind of stuff. You don't, you don't kind of think about as you're reading a book, but it's, it's stuff that the author has to do. And I know there was, I, cha- I changed editors probably two or three times, not because my book was problematic, but just because organizational changes uh, at the mm-hmm. time. So that added some time to it as well. But I, I feel like it was probably somewhere in the same range, six to nine months. Mine was about the same length as Rob's too. I think 200 30 some pages, something like that. Interesting. Okay. I'm gathering all of this information in my little brain for my future publishing novel. If you still want to write a book, Amy, after talking to us, then you are destined to be an author. Let me tell you. Excellent. Yeah. Great. Great. <laughs> the great. Truth. I imagine, Rob, that being a developer advocate means that you have to establish credibility in the industry or amongst developers, at least. So writing this book would probably have help that is there another way that you try and incorporate that into your career just like establishing credibility in the industry yeah i mean i think the book either it's going to take it one of two directions (laughs) it's either going to help establish that or it's going to completely destroy it so the the jury's still out we'll see it's just spread out fresh off the you know the press so we'll see what, what that looks like in a couple of months but no i mean i think that's actually a really good point about developer advocacy and really developer relations Mm -hmm. in general Right. I mean, you, you have to become, you know, come across as a believable developer uh, first and foremost. Right. And for me, I think, you know, Matt and I've actually had conversations about this a lot. For me, I, I really liked it to root things in sample code. Mm-hmm. Anything that I do, whether it's a blog post or, you know, a video or a webinar, or anything that I would be using as developer content to help somebody, you know, learn whatever it is. I feel like I should do it first, right? Anything that I'm talking about or anything I'm writing about. And so I typically, when I start any project, you know, developer relations related, uh, book included, which is why I, you know, mentioned writing the sample code is that I like to just dive directly in the code, whether that's, you know, Python or Node or, or Java, I think it's extremely important. And a lot of that research, you know, not only just getting it to run, but, you know, from a developer relations side, you also have to to know how, you know, the, the industry actually writes that stuff. You know, what ecosystems are they in? You know, what tools are they using? You know, what's the preference or the style that they write their code in? You know, what design patterns are prevalent? Um, what tool sets are prevalent? Stuff like that. Um, all in this effort, right, to be to establish credibility, like you said, I think is really important. And to do that, I think you have to actually get in there and get your hands dirty. Mm-hmm. And I think at the end of the day, like with almost anything, it breaks down to understanding the problem that your people are facing or the problem that you're trying to solve. So being able to have your hands in the pot or feet on the ground or how whatever analogy you want to put into it and under truly understanding the developer problem i think is like probably a huge piece of the pie as well matt please tell me this is going to be a good one i feel tell me why you love your job if you do what about it do you love (laughs) 
I mean, don't uh, probably don't tell me if you hate your job because I don't think Couchbase would like just that. silence for the next thirty <laughs> seconds. Love, love is a strong word when it comes to a job. You know, I love my kids. I love my wife. I love Cincinnati Reds. Any sort of job though is going to be tough. <laughs> tough for me to say I love it, right? Because it's you know, uh, if I loved it, I wouldn't expect to get paid for it. Right? <laughs> I would just do it. But uh, yeah, I, I I very much enjoy my job. I've worked at Couchbase for, like I said, over five years. It's the second longest I've spent in any company in my whole career. Mm. Uh, I I definitely uh, I hope I'm not saying this out of turn. But I definitely see my this this be my last technical job. The next job after this will probably be something involved with like I don't know maybe farming or or going back to be a cable guy or something, right? <laughs> this is this is the last job I will, I will work uh, in software, I think. That's how I look at it. So I very much like it here, yes. That's a bold statement for someone who says that they only like their job. <laughs> well, okay. Well, it's more, than, it's more than like, but I don't know if I go far and use the word love. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I love my job. But, you know, the, this is the first job that I have ever said that I loved. I don't think I've ever loved a job prior to this. So I think that's fair. You know, there's been jobs where I love the people that I work with. There's been projects I work on where it's just like, I absolutely, this is a, something that's super important to me. And so I, I love being involved in it. But yeah, I think, I think I reserve the word love for, for certain, certain class of things, right? Wives and sports teams. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and Rob, what about you? Why do you love your job? Yeah. I mean, love is a strong word. No, I'm just, I'm just kidding. Matt, Matt, already took that, Matt already took that bit. Uh, no, you know, I, one of the things that I realized, so I spent some time, you know, similar to Matt's story, I spent some time as an engineer and I actually spent about, about a decade writing mobile applications. You know, that became more and more complex as, you know, different versions and, you know, bigger libraries and SDKs came out and stuff. And one of the things that I realized is that I'm an okay developer. Like, you know, I mean, I'm not like the best, um, but I'm all right. You know, I think I'm all right. But one thing that I really love, uh, especially I loved about a job that really set me on the path to um, developer advocacy was really consulting. You know, that process of really teaching somebody or facilitating someone, uh, that's that's what I love most about developer relations is that I've kind of figured out that, you know, I'm not going to, you know, crank out a bunch of new patents or, you know, invent a new algorithm or, you know, come up with um, some really cool snazzy, you know, product from scratch, just working, you know, in my basement alone. Uh, but what I can do is I can help facilitate somebody to do that. And I think that's what I love the most is being able to create content um, or just, you know, better the experience of other developers that are far smarter than I am and be able to figure that stuff out. Mm -hmm. Yeah, makes sense. I guess you've only been there for a few years, right? I want, I just been wondering how that experience has changed with COVID and not being able to see people face to face, you know? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't know how much that is really, um, you know, affected. So you kind of mentioned, you know, the first couple of years was kind of nice is that at MariaDB, like they didn't have a lot of developer content. Mm. So in order to kind of get out and, you know, meet the community, I first needed to give them something to talk about because all I'd be going out is basically like, why doesn't, you know, this content exist or this sample exist? And so COVID's really given me the opportunity to do a lot of heads down work like that and be able to create that. And, you know, from a seeing people thing, I think it would be pretty nice. I've worked remotely though, since 2014. Um, so, you know, the whole wearing sweats all the time, barely going outside unless I have to, I mean, that's pretty on par to what it was like pre COVID <laughs> for me. I don't know about that. 
<laughs> this is a very developer answer. I am dying in COVID on the other hand because I am like, I need to get out. I need to talk to people. I need some socialization time. I need to dress up. <laughs> Matt, do you have any advice for an aspiring product manager? Well, so I want to just say this is kind of a common thing I'm running into these days, but I'm I'm not a product manager. I'm a product marketing manager. Okay. Right? So I'm I'm managing the marketing around a particular product or a set of yeah. features in that product. Whereas a product manager is going to actually be managing the managing features themselves. The product, right? yeah. 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 So Great that's, distinction. that's a little bit yeah. difference. Yeah. But you know, from I'm relatively new to a, being a, a product marketing manager. From my point of view, it's it's very much like being a developer advocate or developer evangelist. I think it's there's a, there's a few activities that maybe I do or don't do that are slightly different, but I think there's a lot of overlap. And it's very much like Rob is saying, like just trying to to teach people about, hey, there's this really cool thing here. This can really help you, or I want to I want to teach you about how this thing works and how this is going to help you with your job. Um, why this is so cool? Why it's so interesting? I think there's a lot of overlap between those those two. So I think very much the approach should be, you know, if you're passionate about something and passionate about talking to people about it and teaching about it um, and, and just spreading the word about it. And, uh, you know, you don't have to be, you know, uh, Rob is being humble about his his uh, abilities. He's a very good developer. Me, on the other hand, not, you know, again, I'm 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 probably OK. Um, but you know, that's, that's okay. We're, we're, like I said, we're not going to be the ones who are inventing these algorithms. We're going to be the ones who are out there trying to get people excited about them, get people right. interested in them and, and to get feedback on them. That's one of the things I miss about being in-person events, actually, Amy, and I'm, I'm with you on that mm -hmm. is that going to these virtual events and, and being on zoom screens, it's very different than being at a booth or being at a conference and people just asking questions and saying, Oh, what about this? What about this? Oh, I didn't think about that. Let's talk about that right now. You know, it's just kind of the, 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 you know, people talk about the water cooler at work and you, you, yeah. you stop by and, and hear the chatter and you can join in the conversation. You know, I, I very, we talked about this last podcast. I very much endorse working from home. I love working from home, mm -hmm. but the, the developer events, the conferences, the user groups, I miss those tremendously and i cannot wait to get back to them mm -hmm. yeah right uh every tuesday we run our hacker noon meetings in the mornings i am invigorated on tuesdays from team meetings <laughs> and that, that's the level of socialization that i'm having i'm like stoked about having team meetings <laughs> just to get a little face-to-face -face time in there and what advice would you have for yourself from 10 years ago like if you could give your current self advice 10 years ago what would it have been 10 years ago would be 2011 right yeah. if your current self could give your <laughs> 10 years ago can, can self it be, advice can it be can it be stock buying advice is that count <laughs> No, buy more Bitcoin. Bitcoin. Get heavy, yeah. heavy into cryptocurrency. Wait for, that, wait for that Zoom IPO or whatever, you know? Yeah. Jeez, uh, 10 years ago. Uh, if we're talking career advice, I guess. Mm -hmm. Thinking back 10 years ago, I, I was very much thinking like, I need to be, I need to keep going up the chain. I need to be, I'm a developer now. I need to be a senior developer. I need to be a senior partner. I need to be a manager. I need to be a project manager. I need to go up that chain and, and you know, be the CIO, be the C, C, uh, C, what do they call it? CIO, CTO, something like that. Like I need to get up that. Uh, I think I would tell myself, 
based on hindsight, look, is that what you think you have to do? Or is that what you actually want to do? Mm -hmm. Um, because once you start going up that ladder, like it gets very different. Like you get, you get away from those code samples and you get away from the stuff that, that you love about technology, you know, just give that a little more thought than you, than you did the the first time around. (laughs) That's so true. Yeah. I think society tells us that we need to become managers and then we just need to climb the corporate ladder and we need to, um, get that promotion to feel successful or whatever but I totally agree like and also it's it's about enjoying the journey as well I mean once you if if that is your end goal truly and you do get that manager position you'll look back at five years later and remember the days when you were in the pits and like enjoying the moment as well so that's a great point Matt Rob what advice would you give yourself 10 years ago yeah, I, you know, it's funny as I was, I was like, man, I'm, I'm glad Matt gets to go first on this because he, he was kind of on the spot to, to ask that. And then I just got so engrossed in listening to his answer. I was like, yeah, that, that's really good. That's really good advice. But honestly, um, you know, mine would be pretty similar. You know, I think if I were to think back, I would have, you know, just told myself to relax a little bit. Very similar, you know you know, kind of moving up the chain. But also I spent a lot of time doing side work. Mm-hmm. And not because I just loved the project. I, I did a lot of contract work on the side just for, you know, making money. Um, and though I learned a lot from doing a lot of that stuff, I probably lost a lot of years of my life on the back end um, from the stress, uh-huh. you know, of, you know, basically having multiple jobs at once. Like and, writing a know, book? Taking these hard deadlines. And- <laughs> she got you there. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> Touche. Touche. Yeah, so... Yeah. So I guess maybe I, maybe advice to myself, like now or uh, yeah, six months ago, probably be the same, but yeah, I mean, that's, it's one of those things I find myself doing quite a bit. You know, I go through these periods of getting, you know, bored or or stagnant Mm -hmm. at work and then, and then just kind of starting something new, like a side project. And I did that a lot more earlier on, Uh, but you know, as life kind of moves forward and you get more and more responsibilities. And if you're like me, you probably get lazier too. Um, you know, I've learned to relax a little bit more. And so uh, that would be the thing that I'd probably say to myself. I mean, that's really great, Rob. I, I appreciate that as well. That's also smart. Cause I, I remember digging into the side projects, like, Oh man, I, I've got a, a spare three hours this week. I need to get a side project going. And it's ultimately, did that really, that really helped me or did that really just, you know, make me grumpier, you know, for, for two or three yeah. months. Right. <laughs> I am a hundred percent with you there. My coworker sent me a video the other day about um, choosing one thing, like being good at one thing or solidifying one thing as opposed to like, I wake up at 6am and then I go to the gym and then I do my morning gardening and then I do my day job and then I learn how to bake and then I go for a run and it's like, you're doing everything at the same time. You're not going to be good at anything and sticking to one thing, which I am horrible at. I love to put my hands in all of the pots. Um, <laughs> so I'm definitely with you there. <laughs> Amazing. Well, Matt, thank you very much for coming back for another episode on the Hacker Noon podcast. I love having you around. And Rob, it was very nice to meet you and have you on the show. I really appreciate it, guys. Yeah, thank you. And I just follow Matt. So next time he's here, just just send me an invite. Awesome. And Matt, where can we find you on Couchbase online? Yeah, you can check us out, couchbase.com. You can uh, get Couchbase uh, currently, uh, Couchbase servers in beta. 
You can get that for free at couchbase.com slash downloads. You can find me online if you want to talk to me for some reason. I'm on Twitter at M Groves, M-G-R-O-V-E-S. And if you want to email me, you can too. Matthew with two T's dot Groves at couchbase.com. Awesome. And Rob, where can we find you and Maria DB? Yeah, so you can find Marie DB. Frick. <laughs> yeah, so you can Sorry. find you can no, that's fine. Uh you can find Frick Marie DB. You know, you can find Marie DB at MarieDB.com. Uh you can just like Matt said, it's a completely open source solution. You get a free version of the of the server, the database at MarieDB.com slash downloads, just like Couchbase. And you uh can if you want to get a hold of me as well, you can reach me on Twitter at probably real Rob. And you can email me as well at robh at mariedb.com. Awesome. Thank you very much. This podcast was produced by Hacker Noon. It was hosted by me, Amy Tom, and it was edited by Damien. I will see everyone again next week.